This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today's episode is going to focus on globalization, a word that's ubiquitous in our political and newspaper culture today, but a word that's uh, rarely defined. And we are fortunate to have uh, with us uh, two scholars who have done some of the most important work in understanding uh, the nature of globalization in our current world, how it affects democracy, the main theme of our podcast, of course, and the challenges and transformations in globalization uh, in our current world. Uh, They are also the authors of a very important recent piece published by Foreign Affairs called Will Coronavirus End Globalization as We Know It? Uh, We will link that piece along with their bios to the uh, podcast description. Uh, The first guest is Abraham Newman. He's a professor of government in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's also director of the Morterra Center for International Studies, which I've had the the pleasure of uh, visiting and lecturing at a few times. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in Washington, D.C., I think, to actually give a lecture. Oh, thank you. And Abe, as I've already said, his, his uh, research interests focus on uh, politics and globalization. He's written a number of important books, most recently co-authored a book on privacy and power, the transatlantic struggle over freedom and security, and voluntary disruptions, international soft law, finance, and power. Oh, welcome, welcome to the podcast, Abe. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Our pleasure. We will also be joined by Henry Farrell. He's a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University and editor-in-chief of the Monkey Cage blog, which is one of my favorite blogs of the Washington Post. Uh, Henry also works on a variety of topics related to democracy, globalization, political economy, and the internet. And uh, he's actually written a number of books and articles on the topics, including uh, a number with uh, Abe Newman. So we we have the uh, dream team here uh, with us. Before we turn to the uh, LeBron James and Steph Curry of globalization, um, Zachary, you have uh, your Michael Jordan poem, right? Yes. What is your poem titled today? Linked. Let's hear it. Linked. When the wall fell and the whole world stared and the little concrete pieces found their way around the world, did anyone recognize what was sifting out of the rubble? Out of the dust coalesced a new system, a net through which millions flowed to a thousand different points on a map of every port, every city. Out of the dust came a new system, a net not flat, stepped on in points of weakness by U.S. sanctions, Chinese 5G, the silent wars on the internet, invisible above. Out of the dust, we were all linked. The Japanese car assembled in Ohio with parts from Germany and computers from South Korea. Out of the dust, linked. Inexorably linked. Out of the dust, we all needed something and were needed. No more the freestanding self-dependence. No more did the U.S. need to make erasers. No more did China have to grow soybeans. Yet compromise seems too good to a suspicious world and we are busy hiring private detectives to stalk our global competitors while farmers' crops mold in damp fields, while technology companies send our data across the oceans in seconds. We're teetering on the edge of mutually assured destruction, fingers hovering, shaking, just above the economic triggers, and instead of nuclear codes, the president holds the U.S. dollar in his hands. I I love the imagery there, Zachary. What, What is your poem about? My poem is is really about this new uh, world order of globalization that arose after the Cold War. 
And in the beginning, we thought it was going to be this very liberating system. But in many ways, we've found some of the same problems of the older system are, are lingering. Right. Well, I think that's uh, that's a good insight and a perfect place to turn to to Abe. Uh, how Abe do you describe globalization to those who use the word but haven't thought as deeply about it as you have? Well, first, I just want to say that that poem it really captures many of the core arguments that Henry and I make in our work. The um, the, the kind of belief in business and efficiency and profit and how that would trump uh, security interests and conflict and self-interest, um, but also this, uh, this idea of the map. And so maybe let me start there when I think about globalization, um, which is to say that in our version, globalization is not a simple global market. I think that's often what people think of, oh, there's just one market. But actually, we know that there's there's virtually no single market for anything in the world. But in, instead, we have these national markets that are linked through networks of exchange for goods, services, and information. And that that's really what globalization is, is the movement away from dependence solely on national products to the interconnectedness of countries through economic exchange of goods, services, and information which then create globalization. So, so an example of that would be, for instance, a, a vehicle or an iPhone, both of which would have parts made from multiple continents actually integrated together, correct? That's right. And so you have these intricate supply chains, which have components from multiple jurisdictions that are woven together. Right. I think Henry has, has joined us now. Henry, are you there? Well, welcome aboard. We've already introduced you at the top of the hour. You didn't get to hear Zachary's poem, but uh, you'll get to hear it in the uh, playing of the recording. Um, we were just talking about what globalization is, how we define it. Uh, and Abe talked about the importance of networks. Uh, what, what would you add to that, Henry? So that is, I think, the key thing, the key insight that I think we want to push home in our work is that when we think about globalization, there's a lot of wafty rhetoric that people use about uh, markets and uh, awesomeness of consumers and businesses being able to connect together. But what is really important is the plumbing that allows all of this to happen, which involves networks, which involves uh, supply chains uh, ever more, as we see right at the moment with coronavirus, and that these are now becoming politicized in ways that are bringing them to public attention and making us realize that uh, these are very, very complex and they simply cannot be taken for granted in the ways that we have taken them for granted in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and what was the evidence, uh, Abe, for this uh, before coronavirus, before we get to the present? What, what were you and, and Henry seeing that led you to be a little more cautious about the, co- the implications of globalization? Well, I think what, you know, we started, we were very focused on information networks, Uh, So uh, how data was being shared globally and was being used for new data services companies from Google to Facebook. And, you know, I think the the clear uh, canary in the coal mine for us was uh, the Snowden revelations. And, you know, there had been this big talk of the Internet was going to be this, you know, transformative power for freedom and liberation. And what you saw, I think, very clearly in those revelations was the ways in which 
powerful actors, particularly the NSA in the United States, was able to turn the network from a distributed architecture that everybody could, you know, evade each other and be free from government to one in which governments uh, gained, particularly the U.S. government, this uh, panopticon, this ability to watch and monitor their adversaries and use distributed communication as a tool for surveillance. It's extraordinary how long ago that seems. It was not that long ago, but the Snowden revelations and with, with all the uh, Sturm und Drang of the last few years. They, they seem so long ago, don't they? <laughs> I know. Our time scale has really, uh, there's so many scandals happening. It's hard to even remember back that far. Five days ago seems a long, long time ago. <laughs> that's that's exactly that's exactly right. What has um, really been the role of, of big superpowers in, um, in this new, uh, new global order? Well, what we see, I think, is that there are, a lot depends on when they became superpowers. So if we look at the Snowden revelations, which are all about surveillance, if we look at the other work that Abe and I have done, which focuses on financial networks, which are also crucial uh, and have allowed for various uh, exercises of power, what we see is that the United States has been very, very privileged and very capable of turning these networks into tools of strategic dominance. And the reason why it has been able to do that is because it was around and was dominant at the time that these networks were being formed. Whereas China, which was not around when these networks were being formed, has had to play a kind of game of global catch-up. And this helps explain, for example, a lot of the fighting over Huawei. Because if we look at Huawei, which is, of course, this Chinese telecommunications company, which has become very controversial, it wants to build out the infrastructure for 5G for the world. The worry that the United States has is that this will then give a backdoor to the Chinese government, which it can then use, perhaps not only to surveil conversations, but perhaps even to take over and make the uh, communication structure break down in a situation of some kind of a standoff between China and other powers. And uh, and the United States is pushing back with everything it can, including its own control of semiconductor markets in order to prevent this from happening. And what you could see this as being is a situation in which the United States is still the dominant superpower, China is challenging it, but is disadvantaged in its access to and its control over these global networks, and is effectively trying, uh, perhaps through Huawei, to gain some control that it has not had before. It, it, it sounds, Henry, a lot like a combination of a first mover advantage and maybe very traditional geopolitics in a different space. That's right. And we, if, we, if you look at the way that we think about global e-commerce, if you think about network effects and first mover advantages, obviously crucially important there, uh, you want to be not necessarily the first actor to bring an innovation to market, but you do want to be the first actor to bring an innovation to scale, to get the yeah. uh, network benefits and externalities. And the United States has been able to do that. China is doing its best to catch up. And, and if I could just please. add... I think something that's important to remember is many of these networks, these scale networks, they were created largely out of private actor interests. You know, the banks, internet companies, they were creating these networks that had a particular map to them, a particular uh, topography, which was that there were these central nodes in those networks. And then in the wake of 9-11, the U.S. government woke up and said, hey, this, this structure of globalization this particular map 
can be extraordinarily useful for us. And they started to exert that power, uh, first against terrorist organizations, but now we see it increasingly against other great powers like China. Right, right. And of course, the Treasury Department became a central node for this, this activity, right? Exactly. So with these advantages that, that you, you have mapped out, Abe and Henry, you would think the United States would be well positioned to use globalization to its advantage in the coronavirus crisis. But you have written, both of you, very, very eloquently about how we haven't. Why is that? Well, part of the story, at least, involves a state capacity. So we argue that in order to be able to use these kinds of forms of network power. You need control over a central node in the network. You need the kinds of norms also, the kinds of state institutions as well, that allow you to exercise that control effectively. And so the uh, Trump administration, obviously, you can say many, many things about it, but administrative competence is not something that has been particularly notable in the Trump administration. And capacity to understand the situation that it's in, equally, uh, you know, just the same. So we have seen, uh, I think that the United States could probably have done a lot more, a lot earlier in order to try and press for its advantage. And now it is uh, belatedly trying to wake up to this. So we see, for example, the use of the Defense Production Act, which is not simply or perhaps even not primarily being used to uh, get uh, domestic producers to change what they are producing, but instead is being used against companies like 3M, as best as we can tell from media reports, which are a little bit conflicting. But it appears that it has been used to uh, get 3M to, uh, to force its its various foreign subsidiaries to stop supplying other foreign governments and to supply the United States instead with the masks and other medical equipment that the United States wants. So in effect, we can see this is another kind of version of weaponized interdependence, that uh, there are a lot of multinationals which still have their headquarters here in the United States. This means that they are heavily legally exposed to the US jurisdiction, and uh, the Trump administration is using every weapon it can to try and get them to devote their supply chains to the benefit of the U.S. at the expense of other countries, uh, including U.S. allies. It, it sounds like another version of what the Trump administration has done with sanctions on Iran, using the, America's banking power to force banks overseas to uh, not uh, loan money or uh, engage in commerce with Iran. Exactly. And I mean, I think one of the key points of the arguments that Henry and I have made is that it's not simply that they force the U.S. companies to change their activities, but it also it's forcing global networks to bend to U.S. power. And so when it comes to sanctions on Iran, it's not just that U.S. banks have to do things, but if you're Deutsche Bank right. and you want to clear through the U.S. dollar clearing system, which you almost certainly have to do to be a global bank, then you have to comply with U.S. sanctions. Right. It, Although, if I could just add one thing that is interestingly different is that you don't have much choice if you're a bank than to use the US-based banking system. If you are a a government abroad and you are thinking about US multinationals and relying upon US multinational supply chains, you probably have various other alternatives that you could possibly turn to. So this could have uh, some pretty significant long-term costs for the ability of the United States to push forward this US-led form of globalization, which has worked so well for it in the past. 
And, and that's one of the points that stood out to me in your piece in Foreign Affairs, uh, Abe. It, it did seem that you and Henry were arguing that the supply chains the United States has come to rely on, especially for things like iPhones, but also for masks and things of that sort, have left us vulnerable because we can't produce these things ourselves. Is that accurate? Definitely. I mean, I think the thing that we are very concerned with in the foreign affairs piece is um, this notion, you know, the way we call it is reverse protectionism, that the idea that countries traditionally, when they engaged in protectionism, they were minimizing imports and they were trying to maximize exports. But what we're seeing right now in the corona uh, crisis is countries are doing the opposite. They're, They're restricting exports of key equipment and goods. But the problem is, is in many of these supply chains, they do not own the complete supply chain. And so if you're looking at the vaccine markets, you know, there's only a few companies that can produce these vaccines. They're not all distributed globally. And so if we start to create, you know, limits on who can buy 3M masks, and then the Germans start to say, well, we're going to limit who can buy, you know, uh, potential vaccines, you start to get what, you know, we call in the piece, the sicken thy neighbor type of reverse protectionism, where everybody blocks part of the supply chain and and nobody wins. How do we um, protect ourselves from the vulnerabilities of our supply chains while also evoting, sorry, while also avoiding um, completely blocking ourselves off from this new uh, global trade networks that we've come to rely on? It's a really tough set of policy questions and one which Abe and I have frankly not had nearly as much time to think about as we would like. In a certain sense, you know, the the last several weeks we've been dealing with everything else that everybody else has been dealing with with coronavirus, at least those like us who are lucky enough to be able to hold up and do our work at home, while also trying to deal with this uh, extraordinary, complex, ever-ramifying set of events. What What I think we would say is that a purely national solution is probably a bad idea. That is that the kinds of things that Peter Navarro, the uh, the trade advisor to the Trump administration, is talking about of bringing our supply chains home, that's probably not going to work nearly as effectively as uh, we might think that it would. So uh, there is, for example, you know, so there are various some sort of domestic problems in supply chains that we see uh, as well. Jeffrey Gertz at uh, Brookings just tweeted a couple of hours ago about how it is that the uh, shutdown of the Smithfield uh, uh, meat processing uh, complex, uh, which is going to have huge consequences for our ability to uh, buy meat in the United States, uh, if you want pork sausages, go out and get them now. They may may not be there a week or two from now. Uh, This suggests that there is a more general problem with redundancy in supply chains. So part of the problem is that uh, the more the more that we have had pushes for increased efficiency in supply chains, the more that we have had pushes against inventory, against uh, trying to have multiple different suppliers, uh, the more that we, uh, the more that we find ourselves in this kind of situation where we are extremely vulnerable. So, one possible way in which we might think about this uh, going forward might be to think not only about international solutions but also about domestic solutions, which might, for example, involve the use of antitrust law. This 
is something that um, Barry Lynn at the Open Markets Institute has been uh, pushing. Is the idea that is the idea that concentration in the uh, in markets is not only a problem in terms of consumer welfare from the standard perspective, but it also can create these kinds of bottlenecks and choke points, which suddenly can turn out to be devastating under unexpected situations. So maybe we need to push uh, back against this tendency towards uh, having major businesses choke points and want to think about using antitrust, not simply as a means of making prices cheaper for consumers, but also ensuring that there is some greater degree of redundancy uh, in the system. And and that lends itself to the next question I was going to ask. Is there a tendency in globalization that you've seen toward monopoly or at least oligopoly? Well, I I mean, I I think from Henry and my, from our perspective, what we're very concerned with is the an overemphasis on efficiency uh, as opposed to vulnerability. And we don't want to, you know, be panicked and say, hey, throw globalization away and we need to just go back to national markets. I mean, clearly there are a lot of benefits from having global markets and the welfare enhancing effects of trade. But there is a point where uh, kind of the, like, let's call it a neoliberal delusion has made people just discount the potential security and vulnerability consequences of market activity. And that I think, you know, it's it's unclear if globalization simply leads to um, monopoly effects, but it definitely has led to um, the tendency to emphasize efficiency concerns over security and vulnerability issues. And so that's why I think Henry's point about um, antitrust it goes hand in hand with other cons- other initiatives that might see, for example, foreign direct investment through a lens of national security issues. Right. So you had last week the uh, DG Commissioner Vestager, who's in charge of antitrust, say, you know, European countries need to think about state aid when Chinese companies come to swoop in and buy companies that have been hit by the pandemic. And it's that's something you wouldn't have heard even you know two or three years ago from uh, kind of the neoliberal bastion of the European Commission. But I think we're seeing a transformation in which security issues are really front and center in economic uh, economic issues and globalization. And and I think that brings us to to really what what, what was the final question that we wanted to ask. And we always like to close the podcast looking forward. If, as as, uh, you, you have both shown, and as many other scholars have shown too, globalization has had many salutary effects in increasing trade and wealth, but also at the same time, the historian would have to say it's also contributed to concentrations uh, and inequalities. What are the ways we can pursue a gl- good globalization? What would that look like? And how should citizens and scholars begin to think about that? It's really hard. There are a lot of people who are thinking about this. I think about historians such as Quinn Slobodian, also uh, Abe's uh, history colleague in Georgetown, Jamie Martin, has a very, very interesting new piece which just came out in the New York Times uh, this afternoon. Uh, I think I think that what we need to think about, we need to think about a globalization that is not centered upon the neoliberal attitude that markets can solve everything, uh, is not simply focused on uh, flows of trade and uh, pure market exchange, but thinks about the sets of problems that are thrown up by interdependence between different countries. And you can think about pandemics as being a very obvious example of this. We would not see the same kinds of problems with pandemics if 
there was not the uh, kind of deep interconnections between countries, people traveling back and forth, which allowed these uh, to travel along airlines, along land routes, infecting uh, infecting the world. And this is this goes together with wonderful things, obviously, but we don't have the kinds of even the beginnings of the institutional infrastructure which could deal with that. So I think if we're to look forward, we want to think about what are the major problems that emerge in a interdependent world? This is an old set of ideas which go back, for example, to John Dewey. He writes about this in his uh, book, The Public and Its Problems, back in the uh, 1920s. What are the problems and what are the best and most appropriate ways of solving them? Not just thinking about pandemics, thinking about things like food security, thinking about things like, of course, climate change. And also, perhaps finally, thinking about systematic action to eliminate some of the uh, deliberately created loopholes in the global system, which allow, for example, rich individuals and corporations to stash their money away, uh, making it uh, more difficult for uh, governments to raise revenues that they need to do things for their citizens, and also perhaps providing opportunities for those individuals and those corporations to uh, exercise influence over politics in ways that don't necessarily accord with the common good. Mm-hmm. And if, if I just to, to, to give a darker note, which I hope you know we can avert, um, I'm very concerned right now that we're leading to a, a U.S. policy that runs a nationalist uh, political agenda over global economic networks. And I think that that is really, we stand on the precipice of a set of decisions that could drive globalization into the ground. So you had a few weeks ago, there was a story in the German newspaper Die Welt, uh, where the German government was worried that the United States was going to buy a German vaccine producer and claim exclusive rights over that vaccine. Right. Now, it's disputed about what, you know, what did it happen or not, but the German foreign minister very much believe that this was happening. Uh, the 3M case is just another example of this, where uh, the U.S. is using these global economic networks that it has power over um, to not deliver for common goods and collective problem solving, as it did, let's say, in the post-9-11 era, but instead for very self-interested and um, narrow gains. And I think the more that that happens, you could really see both for businesses but also for governments the uh, the win-win mind frame uh, that really the mindset that really underpins globalization could unravel. And that's my biggest concern right now is how do we save it from um, a, a kind of collapse? Right. right. Save the system from being undermined by its strongest actor in many ways. Yes. Um, so as we close, Zachary, do, do, does this uh, sophisticated but deeply compelling account of the importance of globalization, but also the importance of managing globalization and of uh, cooperative measures to serve common interests. Is that something that resonates with you and other young people as you as you think about the future of policymaking in these issues? I think that uh, what Abe and Henry said really does resonate with young people. And I think it's primarily because our experience teaches us the power of globalization, the power of the iPhone in our hand that comes from so many different countries. But at the same time, we also see in front of us the many dangerous effects that globalization can have when used in the wrong way. And I think that young people are far more aware of these issues than than many other generations. 
Well, I, I hope you're right, and uh, I think you are. I hope so. Uh, but Abe uh, has given us a strong warning, and Henry has given us a, a very clear picture of, of what the uh, negative alternatives are. So we certainly have a lot to learn. Uh, Abe and Henry, thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope our listeners will will read more of your work and engage in what will be a more rigorous dialogue about globalization. If that comes out of the coronavirus crisis, that will be that will be a silver lining in many respects. Thank you for joining us. Thanks again for having us. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. And Zachary, thank you for your poem as always. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.